it's really, <clears throat> it's really interesting. We can do some things in our youth that we can't do as we get older. But we can do some things as we get older that we couldn't do in our youth. And I always think it's good to incline towards whatever God brings our way in any given time and find what he wants for us in every given situation. So yeah, I used to be strong, but now I can't roll five pounds on the ground, so things change, and it's okay. I want to find him. I've decided that when I am old and in a rest home, I'm going to try to recognize that in my wheelchair and in my walker, thank you so much, in my wheelchair and a walker, I won't be able to do much at all, but I want to organize the people in the rest home to start praying for the people we know outside. There's a useful ministry that we could do even at that age. The former president of Wheaton College, probably four presidents ago, was a man named Hudson Armerding. I knew him fairly well. But his father had been a pastor of a church where I was serving. And that church used to send him a retirement check every month. And the woman who was the treasurer of that church said, some pastor should be writing him a letter. I elect you to do this. So every month I would write this man a letter. He died at 96. Whenever he would come to town to visit his son, I would always meet with him for lunch. And I remember getting a letter from him one time. He was living in a rest home in Hayward, California. And he was in a wheelchair virtually every day, but he was still teaching a Bible study at that rest home. And he wrote me back and he said, you know, Jerry, they let me teach this Bible study. They wheel all these people into the Bible study. Most of them are dementia. I'll be teaching and they'll be drooling. And he says, I don't think I'm getting through to any of them. But there's a nurse they assigned to be with us. And I think I'm getting through to her. He didn't lose his sight that there's still something for him. I think we have something similar with Paul when he goes to Philippi. And he says that church there, my circumstances have worked out for the greater progress of the gospel. Where was he? He was in jail. And yet he still saw opportunities there. If our eyes are open, we begin to see God's got calling for us and purpose for us no matter where we are in life. And, and they're not going to be the same as somebody else's. Sometimes we look at somebody and we say, well, if only I could be like that person. But God didn't make you to be like that person. Oscar Wilde, the Victorian playwright, said, be yourself. Everybody else is already taken. And so it's good to discover what God has for us. I want to read two passages of scripture, pray, and then I want to talk about some pretty serious business today. Um, the first one is in Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Paul writes to this great church at Philippi. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. The word there for perfect is the word teleos, comes from the uh, word for maturity, and also the particular configurement of the word in that text carries with the idea of finishing, completing, or erecting, like when you put up a tent. And if any of you have been camping, if you're as incompetent as I am, putting up a tent's a bit of work. 
but nevertheless, when the job is done and all the complexity has been laid aside, this is the word that's used there. The other passage I want to read from you for you is Colossians chapter 1, uh, midway through verse 27 to the end of that chapter. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Word complete, same word that we read in Philippians. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. This idea of completion or maturity. God has led you to himself. He has prompted you to move towards him through the Holy Spirit. He has come to you in the incarnation of Christ. He has allowed you to be born again, but you were born to grow. We come to him broken. We have vestiges of that brokenness, I think, till we get home to heaven. Beloved, even now, we're his children. But what's the process of his working through our brokenness like? That's what I want to talk about this morning. Um, all the developmentalists, people like Piaget, who write about cognitive development, Eric Erickson, who writes about psychosocial development, uh, you've got people like Kohlberg and Gilligan who write about moral development, Fowler and Perry who write about faith development. They all see that development is done in stages. Uh, they see that usually what happens in the process of development is we come to a moment of disequilibrium. New data has come in and, and we don't know exactly what to do with it. And so consequently, because of this, we have to change to accommodate for the new data. Do we change because the old conceptual frameworks are completely insufficient? We have to throw them out and start over and therefore accommodate ourselves to the new data? Or do we take the new data and assimilate it and add it to the present understanding, much like a tree not having to give up its interior rings just because it adds more, adds more as it grows in a healthy way? C.S. Lewis said that as humans, we're not like trains going down a track, passing from station to station, always leaving behind where we've been as we chug on to the next place. No, being alive, we take with us all the places where we've been. Wordsworth, the poet, talked about this. In his poem, My Heart Leaps Up, he says, the child is the father of the man. He could have said, the child is the mother of the woman. The child was on the scene long before the adult was ever there. And the impressions made in childhood, if they're not corrected, can sometimes domineer and affect negatively the impressions of the adult. Um, these aren't just talked about by the poets and the developmental theorists. We have reference to it in scripture too, even in the life of Christ. It says in Luke 2.52, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. Now, as God, he never grew. But as the son of man, he developed and went through all the processes of development like we go through. He grew in favor with God, spiritual development, in favor with man, sociological development. He grew in wisdom, intellectual development. He grew in stature, physical development. We could have added to it emotional and psychological development as well. It even says in Hebrews 5, verse 11, it's a, 
a mysterious verse to me, excuse me, Hebrews 5, <coughs> um, verses uh, 7 through 9. In the days of his flesh, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. He was sinless and had to learn through his suffering. I wish that verse wasn't in the Bible. I, I don't like that verse. Because if he was sinless and had to learn through suffering, my guess is I'm not getting a pass on this. He learned obedience from the things he suffered. And having been made perfect, there's that word again that we saw in Philippians and Colossians. Having become mature, he became to all who obey him the source of eternal salvation. We see it in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. You hear it read in every wedding, it seems. But there's this verse, verse 11. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. I think in a fallen world, we can some kind, sometimes have our development truncated. We could get stuck in a place of immaturity and not be growing, not only spiritually, but psychologically, socially, and so many other areas. I want to develop this concept. We, 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 we say, too, uh, when I became a man, I did away with childish things. First John 2 is another passage, verses 12 through 14. Paul writes, I am writing to you little children. The Greek word he uses there is technia. It's a toddler person just learning to walk. I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. What did you know when you became a Christian? Not much more than this. God loves me. He forgave me. He's willing to enter into my life and as we sang this morning, bring order out of the chaos. You didn't know much more than that. None of you, the moment you became a Christian said, oh, I got it now. Jesus is the perfect antheotropic person manifest in the hypostatic union, eschatological ground of all my hope. None of you said that. Those things I think are true. We can grow in our understanding of what faith means, but when you came to faith, it, when you were just a little toddler, all you knew was that God loved you and forgave you. But then he goes on to say, I have, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him. Intimate word for knowledge. You know him who's been from the beginning. And then he says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. And then he repeats it. I have written to you, children, but now he uses a different word. The word is paideia. This is a child under teachable age, instructable age. I'm writing to you, children, because you know the Father. You've come under his discipline. You, you, you've learned that art that basically says every child loved by his father may be disciplined by the by the father you've come to know that loving discipline i have written to you young men because you're strong and the word of god abides in you and you've overcome the evil one you're learning how to use the scriptures as you face life and begin to interpret life by virtue of its wisdom and then i've written to you fathers because you know him you know the one who's been from the beginning so let's talk a little bit about this process, if I can. And I want to share not only from Scripture, but also from my own life, from some, some of the things I've been trying to learn, whether in, in books and in the classroom, or processing some of the dynamics of my own experience, but always trying to keep it somehow biblically based, the thread of Scripture woven through it all. 
I want to use two analogies this morning. And, and these analogies, I use two, like Jesus used parables. He wouldn't just talk about something one way. He might say the kingdom of heaven is like this. Oh, yeah, the kingdom of heaven is also like this. Oh, yeah, the kingdom of heaven is also like this. That's so that we don't get legalistic and bound by a particular image and say it's always got to be like this and we be dismissive of other experiences. Let's look at what this development might be like. Let's look at two analogies. The first analogy, I want to suggest to you that our lives are like an old phonograph record. Do you guys even know what a phonograph record is in this day of uh, DVDs and CDs and, and digital things? Uh, that, 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 that black platter, right, that you'd put on a record player, and it had grooves in it. You'd turn on the record player, and you put the needle in the grooves, and it would begin to play out its theme. Our lives are like that. We begin our lives and things are going fine. But invariably in a fallen world, those records get scratched. And do you remember what the old records would do when they would get scratched? They would skip. They would go, they'd get stuck in that place. They would go round, go round, go round, go round. Psychologists have a phrase for this feature in our development. It's called repetition in search of mastery. Repetition in search of mastery. You could be doing well in a thousand places in your life, but my guess is most of us have three to five places where we're kind of stuck. Some trauma occurred when we were young. We interpreted our experience by virtue of that trauma and the child became the father of the man. And that child started dominating the adult because we were stuck in those impressions. The psychologists tell us not only is there repetition in search of mastery, but they also tell us that trying to work through these things, we generally enter into surrogate relationships with somebody with whom we could process the brokenness. You're driving down the road, somebody cuts you off, you honk the horn at them. That's one thing. But if 20 miles down the road, you're still tailgating that person, honking the horn, screaming obscenities at them, it's not about them cutting you off anymore. You're projecting onto that experience some of your own brokenness that hasn't been resolved because you're stuck in that place. And in repetition and search of mastery, you've projected in a surrogate relationship how you want to work this out. You go to work, they hire somebody new at work. You don't like that person. Somebody says, why don't you like him? You just met him. I don't know. Bad chemistry. Bad chemistry is usually a place where we've used some phrase to describe the surrogate relationship we've entered into with somebody. They haven't heard us, but they remind us somehow, psychologically, way back where we were hurt. As a result of these wounds, we tend to move towards anesthetizing behaviors. These behaviors don't get us better. They just deaden the pain temporarily, like the anesthesiologist deadens the pain after you've had surgery. The anesthetizing behaviors are ones that we have some control over. We're fairly clever. We figure out how to manage our emotional pain and our developmental pain in a clever way. And, and so there's obvious anesthetizing behaviors. Drug addiction, alcohol addiction, uh, sexual addiction, eating disorders, workaholism, um, I think sometimes we can see very clever expressions of this. I know a man who has chaos in his life. 
He acknowledges it privately. But he creates chaos in his world in order to have people's attention deflected to that chaos so that they won't pay attention to himself. I've worked with hell's angel type people, you know, the rough biker type people. I haven't worked with a great number of them, but I work with enough of them to observe a pattern. Everyone I got close to, you know what I discovered about them? They had a marshmallow heart. They were tender hearted. And so the hard veneer was the way they dealt with their pain by trying to keep people from hurting them any further. These are things that we do to try and cope and get by. But as we develop, we begin to pick up convictions. And often the very convictions we pick up go against the grain of our anesthetizing behaviors. And we keep going back to the anesthetizing behaviors. And we develop a level of shame about that. We don't want people to know what's going on. And the shame leads to a kind of pretense. And the pretense leads to inauthenticity, lack of honesty to ourselves and to those we're in relationship with. We find ourselves often in Romans 7. The very thing I find myself doing is not what I want to do. And the th very thing I want to do, I don't do. Who will set me free from these things? Paul says Jesus will. I want to find out how Jesus will. I think this is really important to our own development and growth. But nevertheless, we find ourselves in that Romans 7 vortex, and the problem is um, why? We have these anesthetizing behaviors. We don't like doing them. Why do we keep going back to them? I have to say to you, even though we have convictions, because our wounds are deeper than our convictions. I want, I want you to hear it again. Our wounds are deeper than our convictions. And if our wounds aren't becoming healing in the process of healing by the grace of God, then my guess is we'll keep trying to manage things ourselves by our anesthetizing behaviors. You can talk to a person till you're blue in face and tell them not to do that behavior that they're doing that masks their wound. But until you can help them to learn how to mend, mend their brokenness, my guess is you're not going to make much progress. And somehow Christ needs to be in the middle of this. So how does it work? Well, if I can carry through the scratch record story a little further, let me tell you a true story. This isn't my story, but in all my years of working with people in some form of ministry, it is, it is the third worst story I've ever heard. And it's a true story, and it's a sad story about a guy who had all kinds of scratches in his record. Uh, this, this was a guy, he was a boy, when he's about four years old, his mother dies uh, giving birth to um, a, a younger brother. I think he's going to have some abandonment issues. You read Scott Peck's Road Less Traveled. He talks about people who experience real crisis in an early age. They have to cope with this, and, and, and they'll struggle in various ways. Um, uh, you, you, you can have a child who before the age of 12, when they have their, their sense, uh, sense of self-identity developed at least to that level, they begin to interpret the crisis uh, self-referentially as if somehow they were responsible. So, so let's say uh, dad leaves a family. This one child might say, if I would have just done more, maybe dad would have stayed. And they get on this high performance treadmill because of this wound. Another child might say, Mom left. I wasn't enough to keep her here. I must be 
dirt. I must be of no value whatsoever. And this child gets on a high self-destruct pattern. Another child says, that hurt more than anything in my life and I was not in control. I will never be out of control again because I never want to hurt like that again. And this becomes a high control person. Have you ever had to work with a high control person? Maybe you are one. I don't know. But if you've ever had to work with one, it's usually masking deep pain. You probably can't confront and get anywhere. But if you ask these people about their life, you let them tell their life story, and all of a sudden they tell some deep sadness. And you say to them, wow, that is really sad. That's really sad. And finally they kind of laugh it off. And you say, no, 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 I mean that was really sad. Eventually you start to see them settle down. And then eventually maybe the tears start to come. Finally, they can start to press out the pus a little bit and deal with the sadness, not artificially with the high control, but by grieving and forgiving. We'll talk more about that in a moment. So you could have three kids in the same family that all respond to one of those three ways because of some trauma that took place in that family. We don't respond to these things universally. And there could be a whole bunch of other kinds of responses. But this boy who loses his mother when he's four, my guess is he's going to have some sort of trauma, some sort of abandonment issue. C.S. Lewis's mother died when he was nine years old. He went to a church where his grandfather had pastored that church. Um, his parents were Christians. But people at that church who were well-meaning but foolish told this boy you pray for your mother, she'll get better. I don't think you can give those guarantees. I, I don't know about you, but my faith has some issues in it that I, I wrestle with. Peter, uh, James is arrested, and he's beheaded by Herod. The next week, Peter's arrested, and, and, and he's set free by angels. My faith has to be big enough to account for both of those. I don't know exactly what to make of it. My guess is if you looked only in the moment, you wouldn't be able to make much of it. You've got to have more than that, a bigger perspective. I wonder if maybe when Peter, tradition tells us he was crucified upside down, I wonder if maybe when he was being crucified, going through all that trauma, if he thought, well, maybe James didn't have it quite so bad. I mean, I don't know. These things have to be put in perspective. But nevertheless, sometimes we, we recognize this. These people should have never told C.S. Lewis, you pray, your mother will get better. He prayed as a child of nine who thought her whole survival was contingent upon his prayers. She got worse. They said, pray harder with more sincerity. She died. He felt responsible. And then finally he said, I don't want anything to do with that God. Lewis would later write, I want God, not my idea of God. I want my neighbor, not my idea of my neighbor. I want myself, not my idea of myself. My guess is you're not going to be able to discover these things in a moment. It's bigger. Okay, so this boy's four, his mother dies. Probably has some abandonment issues. Not only that, he's raised in a very large family, and he gets the brunt of the grunt. And usually, if there's a family of great dysfunction, there will usually be somebody singled out to get the bulk of it. There may be enough to go around for everybody, but usually one will be singled out. A wife, a child, whatever. Why is that? Well, it's usually because that child has made the surrogate on whom whoever's got the dysfunction will be playing it out. And this child is the one who gets the brunt 
of what's going on in the dysfunction of that family. When he's 17 years old, he's finally kicked out of the family. And he has to find his own way, totally dependent on his own resources. He gets work, and he is very clever, and he moves up the ladder at his place of employment until he is as high as he can get given his limited opportunities. But at work, somebody filed a sexual harassment charge against him. I believe in my heart of hearts the guy was innocent. He goes to prison for seven years. My college roommate, one of them, on his sixth anniversary, slit his wife's throat from ear to ear and murdered her. He went to prison for three and a half years for murder. Here's a guy who goes to prison for seven years for trumped up charges against him that were false. Here's this guy, can he get better? Look at all the scratches in his record. Every one of you knows whose story I just told. Every one, do you know who it was? You kind of know you were shaking your head, yes. No? I just told you Joseph's story in the Bible. Remember Joseph? His mother Rachel dies giving birth to Benjamin. He's in a horribly abusive family. Why were the brothers so abusive towards him? Because he was the favored son, right? So let's look at him for, from the brother's perspective. How would you have liked to have been Simeon who felt like, man, dad doesn't love me like he loves Joseph? I mean, there's enough pain here to go around. Everybody's got a perspective on it, and everybody's got a, a legitimate case. But nevertheless, the brothers, probably more angry at Jacob, take it out on their sibling. By the way, if anybody should have known better than doing something like that, it should have been Jacob, the unloved son of his father Isaac, who preferred uh, uh, Esau over him. But the sins of the parents are visited on the children of the third and fourth generation. And this junk we call generational sin affects us. God wants to not only bring us to Christ so that we could have forgiveness of sins and the hope of heaven, he wants us to come to Christ so that we could break free from the cycles of generational sin and be free and mended in our brokenness. Joseph is then sold into slavery to Potiphar's house. He's clever. He moves up the ladder. Potiphar's wife comes on to him. He's a man of courage and temperance. He runs from that temptation and she files a charge against him. And for his good choices, he goes to prison. And you go, when's this poor guy going to have had enough? I don't know about you, but if I was God, and aren't you glad I'm not? If I was God, if I was going to prepare a guy to be the prime minister of a country, I don't think I would have sent him to prison for seven years to prepare. I'd have probably sent him to Harvard for an MBA, a law degree, something like this, and, and then maybe made him a, 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 an intern with Angela Merkel or something like that and tried to, tried to get him all this experience. No, he sends him to prison, and among his peers, he's put in charge of bringing order out of that chaos. It's a remarkable learning place. But nevertheless, there's Joseph then in prison. He has disappointments in prison. But does he get better? Does he get better? And you bet he does. But how? And the scriptures give us sparks notes as to how he got better. Or cliff notes for those of you that are closer to my age. Actually, when I was in college, I was a PE major in college, and the Cliff Notes seemed a little complex for me, so we used to read <laughs> classical treasury comics, you know, to get the books down. But anyway, um, 
So the classical treasury comics version is what he names his two kids are the footnotes to how he gets better. So, so the first child's name, Manasseh. Does anybody know what Manasseh means in here? Was there anybody who ever knew what Manasseh meant? None of you? Usually I find somebody and they say, well, yeah, I used to know. And I'll say to them, so what happened? And they said, I forgot. And I go, that's it. That's what it means. I forgot. They don't recognize him. He recognizes them and he starts asking them questions. There's 10 of them there. His, one of his early questions is, do you have any other brothers? When, a, when, when 10 brothers come, that's not a question you'd usually ask. You'd think, come on, man. It's amazing you got 10. You wouldn't think, is there more? But my guess is he is probably asking him, I don't see Benjamin here. I wonder if they sold him off to slavery someplace and I need to go try to rescue him. Do you have any other brothers? Well, yeah, there's one. He's back home with his father. Tell me about your father. When they come back with Benjamin, he gives them a banquet and he seats them in chronological order of their birth. He remembers details. What does he mean? God made it possible for me to forget what happened in my father's house. And I want to suggest to you that he was able to process forgiveness to the forget place. Forgiveness to the place where the trauma of the past no longer hurt him. I believe that forgiveness is like grief. Have you ever heard a person say, I'll forgive you, but I will never forget. That person has no clue what forgiveness means. When my older brother died at 48, I loved this man. He saved my life from a near drowning accident when I was in junior high school. He's the one who took me to the meeting the night I trusted Christ. I loved him. When he died, I'm elected by the family to preach his funeral. And, and I, I, I started thinking, I think funerals are obscenities. I want you to think about all the thoughts you've had since you woke up today. How many of them have you processed with somebody? Now, if you think of the cumulative effect of a lifetime of thoughts, and we never really process most of them with anybody, we remain mysteries to one another. And now you're going to preach a funeral, eulogizing a person who you loved well, but you realize in some senses you hardly knew him. Only God can extend to a person the dignity that life should have. Justice, rendering to another their due, and praise, and so on. So, so anyway, when my brother died and I preached that funeral, if you think I walked away from that funeral and said, well, that's done, I don't have to think about that again, you're nuts. I got misty-eyed and cried every day for two years. I loved him. If you talk to me about my brother at any length of time, I can cry again. When my sister's husband died at 50, these two deaths came pretty close in our family. And when he died, I was elected by the family to preach his funeral. I loved him. I didn't walk away from that funeral saying, that's over with, I don't have to think about it. I called my sister every day for two years to just talk through her grief. Forgiveness is like grief. Something was taken from you, a life without scratches in your record. And the only way you can get past it is if you add the emotional grief to the process of forgiveness. C.S. Lewis said he thinks that everybody thinks forgiveness is a great idea till they have somebody to forgive. Then it's some work. If you don't forgive, the consequence is bitterness. 
towards God, towards other people. Anne Lamott, the American writer, said that bitterness is like you drinking the rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. Bitterness is corrosive to our souls. It keeps us truncated in our development. The person could have died who hurt us. They could have died 20 years ago. And we're still living in the hostility towards that person, giving them full right to have complete control of our life. So anyway, um, he names his first son Manasseh. He has to grieve in the forgiveness process. Let's say you have some trauma in your life. You got a long drive ahead of you, two hours. You're going to drive back home after this camp's over. You're driving by yourself. Your mind will probably gravitate towards the unresolved pain. If you have two hours ahead of yourself, rather than go there, we often turn on the radio or something, plug in a CD or uh, uh, FCD, so that we, we, we don't um, have to go there. But I would say, no, sit with it. Remember, the sadness will come up again, maybe even some anger. And then it turns to sadness. And then finally, at the end of two hours, you find you're able to bring it to the resolution of forgiving that person. A couple weeks later, it takes two hours again. A couple weeks later, it takes two hours again. C.S. Lewis said when Jesus said, don't forgive seven times, forgive 70 times seven, maybe it takes 490 attempts to get past one deep scratch in your record. Next time, it takes an hour and 45 minutes. Next time, an hour and a half. Next time, an hour and 15 minutes. Next time, 45 minutes. Next time, three hours. You just had a relapse. But one day, the memory of the thing and the forgiveness become a single act. When it comes up, you say, oh, yeah, boy, God was gracious to me in that process. I've learned so much from it. And I've learned how to be at peace in my heart, how to forgive this person. I'm finding that I'm starting to mature. There it is. And move towards a more Christ-like approach to life, Christ who said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. At that point, Manasseh's born in your life. But what's the second child's name? Be fruitful. Ephraim, be fruitful. Move on to positive activity and see how God can use broken people to accomplish his purpose in your world. This is very interesting. I, I, I had a woman come to my office at Wheaton College. She didn't knock on the door. I wasn't having office hours. She just burst into the door and came into the room and said, Jerry, I've got to talk with you. All my life I have struggled with performance issues. And today something was spoken in chapel at Wheaton College, and for the first time in my life I realized that God loved me not based on my performance. I said, wow, that's incredible. Sit down, let's worship. We prayed and we worshiped God for a while. And then after we said, amen, I turned to her and I said, you said you've struggled with this all your life. What's that about? She said, well, I suppose you're going to tell me it was my parents. I said, I'm not going to tell you anything of sort. I don't know. Maybe you were in a junior high. Remember junior high? The most purgatorial period of human development. Maybe you were in a junior high class or lunchroom or something and somebody said something incautious and it cut so deep. These things could get Velcroed to us so easily. And I said, I don't know why. She said, well, my sister thinks it's my parents. I said, it's interesting to me. I haven't said anything to you about your parents and you've twice defended them. What's that about? And then I looked at the clock. The dam broke 
And I watched for 20 minutes as she told me about incredible dysfunction in her family. She had a father, she grew up on the mission field. She had a father who tyrannized by attention. You did what he wanted, he stroked you. You didn't do what he wanted, or if he misjudged you, you were doing what he wanted and he didn't see it. He would not even look at her. Sometimes for three weeks, he wouldn't talk with her in the home. When a young girl's at that point in her adolescence, she needs the, apparent, the attention of a, a father. And I just heard the story for 20 minutes she went on. And at the end of 20 minutes, she says, I don't think I'll ever be able to love my parents. I said, that's not an option available to you. She said, what do you mean? I said, well, 20 minutes ago, you came in here and told me you learned that God loved you not based on your performance. Now you tell me you're going to withhold love to your parents based on their performance. The mark that you are growing is Ephraim is being born. There's fruitfulness. You're learning how to grow through the pain of the past. Having forgiven and grieved, you're learning how to transcend that cycle of generational sin. If you can't forgive your parents, then you're just re-entering right back into the cycle of generational sin. And you put your own children at risk at that point. Okay, so that's one analogy. You get the idea? Let's look at a second analogy then on this mending. I want to talk about passing through three rooms. All of us developmentally have to go through these three rooms. If there's three, there might be 303. Just an analogy. But let's look at the three. The first room I'm going to call the Goodwill Hunting Room. How many of you saw the movie Goodwill Hunting? Okay, so about maybe half, a little bit more, three-fifths. And the rest of you, I'm assuming, did not see it. Goodwill Hunting was a movie written, the screenplay was written by Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. These guys wrote it in their 20s. These guys are absolute geniuses. It won Best Picture that year. Robin Williams won Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor, the only Academy Award he ever got for this film. There are several themes going through the movie. Um, the film is basically about Will Hunting, played by Matt Damon. Will Hunting is a guy who has Einstein-level genius, but he's been raised in the foster care system. He has been horribly beat up. There are pictures later that are shown in the movie where people put cigarette butts out in his arm, stabbed him, wounded him, bruised him. Horrible treatments he received, and that's not to in any way suggest that that's what the foster care system is like. It's not. But there are cases where this might happen. And Matt Damon's character has had this abuse. But Einstein-level genius. He, he, he's working as a custodian at MIT. He has photographic memory. Um, so one of the big themes is Matt Damon with his friendship with Ben Affleck. They've been friends since childhood. Ben Affleck is, is, is not bright like, like uh, Matt Damon, but he's loyal and faithful, and he trusts him. That theme runs through. There's another theme, too. There's a professor at MIT. And this professor has won the Fields Medal, which is bigger than the Nobel Prize for mathematics. And he is a brilliant guy. And he's talking to a tiered classroom full of students. And he says, listen, um, I, I'm pretty confident none of you will be able to figure out the problem I put out in the hall. But, but if any of you ever do figure it out over the semester, I'll find you a six-figure income right out of college. 
but it's not likely you're going to do it. You know, this is pretty tough stuff. The next day they come to class, the math problem's solved. Everybody's looking at the professor who solved it. He's in, he's in awe. Who did this? Nobody answers. The next day they come to class, he says, okay, I got another problem out there. This problem took me two years to figure out, and I'm the Fields Medal winner. And the gauntlet is thrown. Let's see you answer this one. The next day they come, the problem's solved. The professor knows he is in the presence of genius. Who is this guy? One night, working late at the college, he sees the custodian answering the next problem he put out on the board. He chases after him. He can't find him. He goes to find out where he's at to the custodian services office the next day, only to find out that Matt Damon is in jail because he violated his probation. The guy's been in a lot of trouble. He's had pain in his life, and he's played it out by being rather aggressive and hostile towards people. So the professor goes to the courts and says, release him to me. This guy's a genius. I need him. I need to use him. They tell him, okay, we'll release him to you if you can find somebody who can give him psychological care. So the professor takes him to all these genius psychologists. Well, Matt Damon, the night before he's supposed to meet with the psychologist, reads all about that psychologist's writing. And he's smarter than all these psychologists, and he ties them all in knots. So the professor doesn't have anybody else to turn to, so he turns to his old college roommate, played by Robin Williams. When we meet Robin Williams, the professor's going up to the classroom. This Robin Williams has gone to the old neighborhood, working with kids who are underprivileged. He's teaching at a community college. This professor at MIT has no place for Robin Williams. Why did he go back to the old neighborhood? Why didn't he make something of his life? But when he walks up to the door, Robin Williams is teaching the class, and he says, the first thing a psychologist has to do is establish trust with the person he's working with. So the professor comes in and says, you know, uh, what was his name, Sean, the character, Sean, I have, a, I have a problem here. I got a guy, and he's really a genius guy, but he's had some troubles, and he needs a psychologist to work with him. I was wondering if you could talk with him. He says, where was I on your list? Did you go talk to so-and-so? Oh, no, don't tell me that. Did you go take, oh, come on, why'd you take him to that guy? He's so pretentious. Did you take him, oh, come on, yeah, I'll see him. So he brings him to his office, and Robin Williams also gets tied up by Matt Damon's character. At the end of the first session, Robin Williams has Matt Damon by the throat up against the wall, and Matt Damon says, I think the counseling session's over. But Robin Williams goes to the professor and says, I'll see him. Bring him next week. I'll see him. The next week he comes. And, and when he comes to his office, Robin Williams says, come on, let's take a walk. They go to Boston Gardens. They're sitting on a bench. There's some ducks lazily swimming by. And Robin Williams looks at Matt Damon. And he says, um, you are really smart. You're Einstein-level genius. But everything you know, you've learned from books. You, you've read about art, but you don't know what it smells like to be in the Sistine Chapel and to see the vibrancy 
of Michelangelo's paintings on that roof. He says, you've read about war. Um, Matt, uh, Robin Williams' character had fought in the Vietnam War. He says, you've read about war, but you don't know what it's like to cradle your best friend's head in your life as he bleeds to death in your arms from battle wounds. You've read about love, but you don't know what it's like to sit by the bedside of your wife, the woman you love most in the world, while she dies of cancer. And all the doctors and nurses know that the signs that say visiting hours are over don't apply to you. No, you've read about all this stuff, but you got it from books. And Robin Williams says to him, you're an orphan, aren't you? Matt Damon hangs his head, kind of embarrassed. Yeah. He says, what would you think if I told you I knew all about that because I read all of her twist once? He says, I want to know you. And I can't get to know you from a book. And I'm all in. I am all in. So the next week, Goodwill Hunting, Will Hunting comes to his office, Matt Damon comes to his office, and the whole time he sits there and doesn't say a word, the whole hour, just sits there. The professor comes to collect him and says, did you fix him yet? Did you fix him yet? He wants to use him. Matt Damon's used to people using him. We live in a world of self-referentialism and utilitarianism. People use each other. It's so different than Christ who wants us to be self-aware and self-giving. So anyway, the professor says, did you fix him yet? And Matt, uh, 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 Robin Williams says, he sat there silent the whole hour. The professor goes, is that good? And Robin Williams says, pretty impressive, actually. What was going on there? If I don't give you what you want, will you abandon me like everybody else? Or if I don't give you what you want, will you hang in there and love me? Sure enough, shortly after that, when Will Hunting sees that Sean's in it for the long haul, he starts to open up, and so much of the movie then is that second theme, the relationship between um, Will Hunting and, and his counselor. So you've got the two friendships, you've got this one, that's the biggest one, counselor and, and counselee. Then you've got the mini driver story, the relationship between Minnie Driver, the love interest, and, and, and Matt Damon. Then you've got the relationship between Matt Damon and the professor, who's a jerk. And then you've got the relationship between the professor and Robin Williams, where there's plenty of misunderstanding. But you start to see the story unfold mostly through these counseling sessions. And when finally trust is built, and finally Robin Williams has opened up Will Hunting to the place that Will Hunting is willing to let Robin Williams enter into his life at some place as a wounded healer. Robin Williams comes, those of you who have seen the movie know this scene, it's the most poignant moment in the scene, in the movie. He lays down these pictures from uh, Will Hunting's file of all the knife wounds, the bruises, the beatings, the cigarette butts that have been put out. And when he lays them on the table, Matt Damon says to Robin Williams, do you know about this? Robin Williams says, yeah, actually I do. He says, no, 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 I don't mean do you know what's in my file. Do you know about this kind of behavior? And Robin Williams says, yes, I do. 
And you realize now that Robin Williams himself had been a person who had experienced these things. And Robin Williams had gone back to the old neighborhood. And Robin Williams was trying to love people in these situations. And so they talk about the abuse they both experience as children. And then finally, Robin Williams says to Matt Damon, the most poignant words in the movie. Do you remember what it was? What was it? It's not your fault. You do not have to define yourself any longer by the scratches in your record. You don't have to define yourself by the times well-meaning you might have drawn on the walls of your house to communicate love and it was misunderstood. Or you were putting water in a, in a pan to wash your, somebody's feet and it was misunderstood. It's not your fault. You do not have to define yourself by the brokenness and the fallenness and the garbage of this world. You could define yourself by something better. And so what does Matt Damon do when Robin Williams says it's not your fault? He laughs it off. Yeah, I know. I know it's not my fault. He doesn't know. He's deflecting it. He says it a second time. It's not your fault. I know. It's not your fault. I know. It's not your fault. Stop messing with me, man. He just bursts into tears and falls into Robin Williams' arms. And the soul cyst is lanced, and the pus can finally come out. And he doesn't have to be stuck in that place anymore. Wow. Wow. Bible says in Revelation 2.17, when we get to heaven, God is going to give us a white stone with a new name on it. Name often in scripture carries with it the concept of identity. One day we're going to receive from Christ our true identity in him. He's the only one who could ultimately properly define us by virtue of his love and his grace and his forgiveness. It says it's going to be a new name known to the one who receives it. How can it be new and known? It's paradoxical. It's because all of our life we've been getting down payments on the name the unique name he has for us, the unique designs he has for us and purposes he has for us, where he brings all the threads into the fabric of our life for meaningful activity. Okay, so that's just the first room. If you leave that room and think your developmental process is over, you are in deep trouble because you'll go through life and anytime something comes up, you'll say, it's not my fault, it's not my fault, it's not my fault. And you could be doing havoc to everybody in your world. It's not my fault. Richard Rohr, the pastoral Catholic theologian, said pain not transformed is transferred. Hurt people hurt people. Boy, I remember in my life when I came to the Matt Damon Goodwill hunting room. I remember it. I've been pastoring a church out in California. It was the biggest church in Santa Barbara. Santa Barbara, I don't know if you've been there before or not, but if you believe in Jesus when you die, you go to Santa Barbara. <laughs> it's one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. I was pastoring this large church. I had all this hope, you know, all these years of ministry, training and stuff. And, and, and this was a church from hell. You talk about Catholic church having uh, priests who have molested kids. I had a 
uh, there had been a, a pastor who had been there before me who molested two junior high boys. It was all swept under the carpet. While I was there, we found out the deacon that was in charge of the preschool with 120 kids in it was a pedophile. All that stuff came out while I'm there. This church was just horrible. I had nine pastors, full-time pastors on staff. Six of them shouldn't have been in ministry by virtue of the qualities expected of ministers in the Bible. And I'm inheriting this thing, and it was a wealthy church. A lot of people died, left their estates, the church. On the surface, it looked great, but oh my heavens. And I got so beat up there. I finally went to the board and I said, I feel like you brought me here to dig the Suez Canal, and you gave me a spoon to dig it with. That might be good servanthood, but it's not good stewardship. And I left that church. It was one of the darkest periods of my life. My wife got beat up in that process too, but she started going for counseling and she started to get a bounce back to her step. I noticed that in her. One day she came to me and she says, Jerry, why don't you go to counseling with me? I think it'll help me. I said, okay, Claudia, if we can help you, I'll go. How arrogant is that? I've done over 900 weddings in, over the years and premarital counseling with over 600 couples. I got a book coming out this month on premarital counseling. I tell couples, this is the most important thing you need to know about marriage. Um, the difference between a good marriage and a bad marriage is not the difference between a problem-free marriage and a marriage with problems. We're in a broken, fallen world. All marriages are going to have problems. The difference between a good marriage and a bad marriage is in a good marriage, when the problems occur, the couple goes and gets help. They get help. A bad marriage, they don't. Or in a bad marriage, one of them says, I think we need help, and the other one says, maybe you need help, but I'm fine. That, that's the person who needs the most help. Why wouldn't you want to go if your spouse thinks you need help? I don't understand this. And, 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 and I, I, I don't understand the insecurity of it, and so on. So I tell the couples, if one of you thinks you need help, the other one needs to beat you to the counselor. I don't mean beat you to the counselor. I mean outrun you to the counselor. You need to go get help. If your roof leaks, what do you do? You get in a roof or fix it. If your car's trans transmission goes bad, you take it to a mechanic to fix it. If the washing machine's not working, you bring in an appliance repair guy to fix it. We treat our appliances better than our relationships. What's the level of insecurity that reveals to us? It shows us that we know nothing about the love of God because we don't know enough about his love that we could look honestly at the things in our life that might be goofy. We're in a broken world and we're infected by that brokenness. So there's the second room. And the second room is, if we've been hurt, how might we have hurt others? Even Jesus says it in Luke 6.40, a pupil fully trained will be like his teacher. Doesn't mean we'll know as much as a teacher necessarily, but we will pick up by contagion the values and attitudes of the teacher. So I went to counseling with my wife. One of the things I wanted to find out was how was it that I could walk into a situation so dysfunctional until I found out in counseling what the levels of dysfunction were that I grew up in. I, 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 don't, I don't think I would have liked to have been my parent. I think I was probably ADHD. I'm sure I was difficult to raise, but my mother would weary. I was the third born out of four in our family, and she'd put me down for naps before I started school and leave me on my bed. 
and I might go down for a nap after lunch and be there till dinner time. I remember one time I got out of bed and got a teddy bear to play with on the bed. She came into the room and said, where'd you get that teddy bear? Did you get out of bed to get it when I wasn't here? And she beat me, took the bear away, and I was stuck in bed. That's the way my childhood was. When I started school, I didn't have to go to be in bed anymore. Unless I went into the house and the rules had changed because the rules were never consistent in our place. And I'm sure my mother was doing the best she knew how, given the dysfunction she came from. But nevertheless, it hadn't been filtered out. And so I would try and stay out of the house. I wasn't born with a sense of smell. If I had to go to the bathroom, number one, I'd do it behind the garage. Number two, sometimes I'd mess my pants. I'm in school now. My mother would smell it. I could never figure out how she figured it out. But the way she dealt with me, not was, why are you afraid to come into the house to go to the bathroom? What kind of fear have we created for you here? No, it was all about me. So she'd take the soiled underwear and wipe it in my face and leave me at the toilet to clean out the underwear at the toilet. And as a child, what do we do? We don't say, wow, this is complex. Mom should get to a therapist and get this stuff figured out. No, we say, I must be a bad person. And we begin to interpret it as if we're the problem. And I began to define myself that way. My older sister, Kathy, she's eight and a half years older than me. She came to a couple of the counseling sessions with me. And, and the therapist was asking her about the childhood from her perspective being older. And she said, oh yeah, whatever the rest of us got, Jerry got a hundred times more. And I was the one that got the brunt of the grunt in the family. And all of a sudden my sister is recounting stories that I had even forgotten. And it was horrible. And she starts bawling in the counseling session. The therapist says, why are you crying? She says, because I grew up in that house and I couldn't do anything about it. I go, wow, wow. Well, there came the moment of the goodwill hunting event in therapy. I remember it well. It wasn't your fault. It wasn't your fault. And I was weepy for two weeks. I finally went to the therapist, though, and I said, you know what? I have heard that people who have been hurt can hurt other people. She says, it doesn't always happen, but it's not uncommon. She said, uh, yeah, let's talk about it. So I started evaluating about my child raising, and I think I did a relatively good job, except in one area. One area. I have an older son, Jeremy. He'll be 40 this summer. And, and Jeremy is 178 IQ. It's hard to raise a kid who's so much smarter than you. Totally unaffected by peer pressure. If his friends were going to do something bad and he didn't think that was something to do, didn't even bother him what they thought about him. But that, while it could be a positive characteristic in that setting, could be a negative characteristic in another setting. There are some things about peer pressure that aren't all that bad. I've been looking at you all morning, and I haven't seen a one of you picking your nose and eating your boogers. <laughs> Somehow you've been socialized by a degree of peer pressure. That's not bad. Jeremy's 12 years old, still picking his nose, eating his boogers. Doesn't think anything about it, and his friends would make fun of him. And I would see this, and it would drive me nuts. I didn't like to see him marginalized by his friends because I had a life where I'd been marginalized by my own family. 
He, he would lick his lips and get chapped. And I'd buy him chapstick. He'd lose a chapstick, keep doing it till he had that scab, that bozo scab around his face. I'd drop him off at school. When I'd drop him off, he'd get out of the car. I'd see his friends pointing at him, laughing at him, making fun of him. And they'd go running off and I'd see him walking like this. And it just used to drive me nuts. I didn't want him to do that. I didn't want him to have these feelings, but I'm projecting my feelings on him. I'm not giving him room for his own pilgrimage. And so consequently, I'd say, Jeremy, you do that, I'm gonna spank you. I don't want you doing that. You do it again, I'm gonna spank you again. I, I, I would say if I was evaluating it now that it was child abuse. It was that one thing. I didn't care if his room wasn't cleaned up. I didn't care how he did on his homework, you know. I let his mom take care of that. She was clean. She was Dutch. You know, they always, they washed the sidewalks and stuff. And she had good grades. But, but this was the thing that I was concerned about, and it was bad. I didn't see it from his point of view. I didn't see his pilgrimage. I didn't have the objective eyes to see what was going on in his life. I was only projecting my experience onto him. And I talked to the therapist about this, and I realized what I had to do. I had to go back to Jeremy, and I had to play the Robin Williams role with my own son and tell him it wasn't his fault. And so I sat down with him. I remember the afternoon. He was 15. So what? He's 40 now. That's what, 25 years ago. And I sat down with him, and I said, Jeremy, I want to talk to you about four generations in our family. And I went through about the dysfunction. Finally, I said to him, and then finally, Jeremy, I was trying to make you not feel rejected by your friends and had no clue I was making you feel rejected by your own father. It wasn't your fault. I am so sorry. Will you forgive me, Jeremy, for this? Please forgive me. And we both burst into tears, and we wept and wept for two hours in each other's arms. The next day I brought it up again, and we wept again. The next day I brought it up again, and we wept again. And so it went for a week. After a week he said, okay, Dad, I'm starting to get it. A year later I asked him if I could tell the story. I never tell stories about anybody without asking their permission. I said, some story you get from a biography or something. And he said, okay, I was at a gathering. He was sitting up at the balcony at this gathering and I told the story and I'm watching him. And there are people who are somewhat moved by the story and after the morning's over, some of them come up to talk to me because they've got their own struggles and issues they're working through. And I see him get out of the balcony and come down. He comes down the middle aisle and he comes walking up to where I'm talking to somebody. I'm very aware of him. And he comes up and he puts his hand on my shoulder and just stands there the whole time while I'm talking with people. You see, it's one thing if I ask his forgiveness privately. It's another thing if I own it publicly. He knows that it really wasn't his fault. Every once in a while I still go back and visit this with him. He's doing a much better job with his children than I did with him. Oh, by the way, my daughter, she went on and got her doctorate in psychology. Didn't I mention that already? I sort of drove her to it. She married a, she married a therapist too. 
And when she's working on her doctorate, every family member has to go to one therapy session with her. I tell my wife that morning, I'm owning everything. I go to the session and she's talking about the dysfunction in our family. And, 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 and I look at her and I say, Alicia, that stuff happened, but none of that happened to you. She bursts into tears and she said, but dad, I lived in that house. And I thank God for the tears I saw in my sister's eyes because all of a sudden I realized what the collateral damage had been. I said, oh, Alicia, I am so sorry. Will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? Years later, I was asked to go speak on family at Hume Lake. It's a Christian conference center up in the High Sierras. I never speak on family. But they asked me to do it, and I said, okay, listen. I'll do it on one condition. All my family has to be there. And after every talk I give, a family member has to get up and give their response to that talk with their perspective. That's the only way it's going to be really honest, you know. If your perspective is the perspective that plays Trump on everybody else's perspective, then there's something dysfunctional about that. And we can't let that happen. Not if we really know that God loves us and we're inviting him to come and bring about transformation in our world. Well, what I discovered in the, the second room, Goodwill hunting room, first room, second room, I call it the dark room because this discovery of stuff in our own lives, I want Jesus to come into that world. The incarnate Christ came into a broken world. Let the incarnate Christ come into your broken life and bring about resolution, honest, truthful resolution. When he comes into that area of your life, you realize you have to go back and ask forgiveness of people. When you ask forgiveness, though, in your mind, if you're like me, you're saying in your mind, if you only knew, I was doing the best I knew how, given the poor tools I was given. The problem with that, though, is you never want to say to the person you're asking forgiveness of, I was doing the best I knew how, because it sounds like you're trying to give yourself uh, a pass. No, own it. But in your own mind, if you're thinking, I was doing the best I knew how, what does that mean? That means the person who hurts you was also probably doing the best they knew how. Which when you start thinking about that, you start thinking, wow, my mom probably went through some pretty bad stuff. And sure enough, I started asking the aunts and the uncles what happened in their family. And I all of a sudden discovered my mother was a hero given all she filtered out. So consequently, the third room, you're on the threshold of it when you realize if you were doing the best you knew how, those who hurt you were doing the best you, they knew how, it accelerates the forgiveness backwards. It makes it possible for you to untether from the hurts of the past. And the third room is the wounded healer room where you realize the first person you get to be the wounded healer with is the person who hurt you. And that's to be more like Christ. I offer my life for you. Jerry Sitzer, the pastoral uh, theologian at Whitworth College, he's the guy that wrote the book of Grace Disguised. It's a wonderful book on grief after he lost his wife and two of his kids when they were hit by a drunk in a car. But he wrote a book called The Adventure. And in this book, he says, we're most like God in the world when we're most unlike him in relationship with him. 
We're most like God in the world when we're most unlike him in relationship with him. If you catch yourself being unloving, go to God in all your unloveliness. Receive from him out of the rich reservoir of his love for you that you might be more loving in the world. Only God is independent. Go to him in utter dependence upon him that you can go into the world then independent of the world so you could stop being a user and start being a giver. If you find yourself being impatient, don't beat yourself up. We're all goofy. Go to him in your impatience. Receive from him out of his patience that you might reinsert yourself into the world more like him in the world, a patient person. There's the whole process. Those are two analogies, that's all. But people, God loves us. And he doesn't love us just in the moment of our conversion. He who began a good work in you will continue it until the day of Christ Jesus. And I think the day of Christ Jesus is when more and more of the aroma of Christ begins to be manifest in our life. And my guess is it emerges in the midst of our brokenness. Just like the incarnate Christ came into a world of brokenness. Let's pray. Father, I pray that um, the people here wouldn't be so much distracted by my story or Joseph's story or any other story. But I pray, Father, that through these stories, they would have, in some senses, um, a way to evaluate their own story. And I pray that they would discover in the midst of their story something of the presence of the incarnate Christ who came into a world of brokenness that he might mend and in the process of mending that he might deploy. Create in us Manasseh that we might grieve and forgive. Create in us Ephraim that we might see you have purposes to deploy us into the world and serve you as wounded healers. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.